Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 53, Beads on a String, in which we hear of advances in learning about protein structure in the 1950s. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. The middle of the 20th century marked a high point in the reputation of chemistry, not just because of DNA, polymers, and synthetic organic chemistry, but also because of strides in understanding the structure of proteins. We've talked about Pauling's success in the general alpha helix and beta sheet already, so now let's talk specific protein molecules. In the 1930s, Pauling began researching the protein hemoglobin, specifically how the four tetramers know when to release and absorb oxygen in order to carry the oxygen throughout the body. Given how Pauling was immersed in quantum theory, it's natural to guess that he applied his knowledge to this problem as well. He noted that molecular oxygen has two unpaired electrons, as molecular orbital theory, the rival to his valence bond theory, noted. However, as he observed, oxyhemoglobin, that is, with oxygen molecules attached, has no unpaired electrons based on magnetic data. To explain this, he viewed the iron in hemoglobin, which we know now, which we know is a coordinated complex of iron surrounded by an organic ring holding it in place, as essentially an ion. Adding oxygen to hemoglobin then rearranges the molecular orbitals from an ionic iron to a covalently bonded iron. So here, magnetic properties help to understand chemical structure. I also want to bring in a technique first invented by Russian-Italian botanist Mikhail Tsvet at the beginning of the 20th century. Interestingly, Tsvet is an appropriate name for a botanist, for it's a Russian word meaning color or flower. He was interested in separating out the various colored pigments in plants, the xanthophils, yellow, the carotenes, orange, and the chlorophylls, green, so he set up a column filled with solid calcium carbonate and a mixture of petroleum ether and ethanol as a liquid. The different compounds moved down the column at different rates, and he could capture each in a different area, giving bands of different colors in the column. He presented the research in 1901, published several times, and first used the term to describe it in general, chromatography, from Greek color writing, in 1906. Unfortunately, as we've seen elsewhere, if you publish in a lesser-known language, in his case Russian, people are less likely to read your work, and his work was mostly ignored. Then it was revived in the late 1920s, but the chemists doing it at this time placed dots of chemicals on strips of filter paper. The solutions were able to travel along the paper, with different chemicals moving at different rates. 
Again, it's chromatography, but on paper this time. The pattern of separated chemicals on the paper is called a chromatogram. You can try this with colored felt-tip markers on, say, strips of coffee filter paper. Suspend the strips around a cup with a small amount of water in it so that the strips just touch the water. And see if you can separate out the pigments in your markers as the water climbs up the strips. So, finally we get to the question of proteins. Up until the middle of the 20th century, chemists knew that proteins were made of strings of amino acids, but in what order were the amino acids linked together? Were they branched or linear? Did the order really matter? Much of this analysis was done by chromatography, but again, this only gave the various amino acids and not their actual order in what we call the polypeptide chain. The best-known practitioners of this technique were Britain's Archer Martin and Richard Singh in the late 1930s through the 1940s. Which brings us to the great Englishman Frederick Sanger. In 1943, he started at Charles Chibnall's research group in Cambridge, which was working on the various amino acid components of cow insulin. Another relatively small protein, but large enough to be challenging with around 50 different amino acids in two chains that were connected together. Sanger used several different techniques in a unified way. He used chromatography, he broke apart the chains into smaller segments, and found a labeling chemical, 1-fluoro-2,4-dinitrobenzene, to mark one end of the chains. The chemical label gave a nice bright yellow color, easy to see on a chromatogram, and it is often now called Sanger's reagent. He determined the sequence of chain B in 1951 and chain A in 1952, and then by 1955 showed how the two chains in cow insulin were linked together. What Sanger did in his insulin work was to show that 1. Proteins have a definite sequence of amino acids. Until this point, it was not obvious. 2. Different proteins have different sequences of amino acids. For his work, Sanger received his first Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 1958. He received a second prize in 1980, but that story will have to wait. Okay, so, now we know scientists can find the amino acid sequence in proteins. Can they actually synthesize a working protein? The first time this happened was with American chemist Vincent Duvigneault, who made a small protein hormone, oxytocin, with eight amino acids. He published his success in 1954 in the Journal of the American Chemical Society. He tested it compared to natural oxytocin, and it worked the same. Oxytocin is a hormone that, among other things, stimulates the uterus to contract in labor. He was also able to synthesize vasopressin, a 9-amino acid protein, which regulates salt concentrations in blood and affects kidneys, and is a neurotransmitter. 
He too received a Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 1955. We already talked about Pauling's alpha helix and beta sheet for generic sorts of protein structures, but how does this apply to real, actual proteins? Max Perutz, the Austrian British chemist, with John Kendrew, English chemist, worked on X ray crystallography of proteins. Recall that Watson and Crick of DNA fame were in Perutz's and Kendrew's laboratories. After World War II, Perutz was able to get government funding to found an X ray crystallography laboratory at Cambridge University. The problem with X ray crystallography of proteins is that proteins have so many atoms that it becomes awfully tedious to calculate back from a diffraction image how the atoms are arranged. Plus, Many proteins are unhappy being crystallized, and even if they are crystallized, how does removal of water molecules, their natural environment, affect their structure? Just about the time that the DNA structure was solved, Perutz figured out that if you choose some heavy metals carefully and add them to your protein, you can compare the diffraction patterns with and without. To give better clues as to the actual structure of the protein, Perutz used mercury atoms. His method, still used today in protein determinations, is called the isomorphous replacement method. By 1959, he was able to get a decent structure for our friend, the hemoglobin molecule. At the same time, John Kendrew was working on a smaller protein. The molecule handling oxygen storage in molecules, myoglobin. It's only about a quarter of the size of hemoglobin. He was able to get high quality crystals of myoglobin from frozen sperm whale meat on hand. He used Perutz's heavy metal method to attach heavy atoms to five particular sites in myoglobin to help determine the structure. What was different about Kendrew's approach was this. He realized that the tedious back calculations from the hundreds of diffraction spots on an image to an atom's position could be programmed on that new electronic behemoth, a programmable digital computer. It turns out there was one called the Electronic Delay Storage Automatic Computer, or EDSAC, at Cambridge operating since 1949. John Bennett, An engineer mathematician from Australia assisted Kendrew with programming the beast and reduced the calculation time to half an hour plus another half hour to print the answers. Kendrew and Bennett's paper, The Computation of Fourier Synthesis with a Digital Electronic Calculating Machine, appeared in the journal Octa Crystallographica in 1952. And was the first digital computation of an X ray structure. Perutz, though, initially didn't trust EDSAC and used the old Hollerith machines, which were punch card based tabulating devices, to assist with calculations. Meanwhile, the EDSAC itself had serious limitations, with only one kilobyte of memory, meaning that Kendrew couldn't analyze molecules at high resolution. Using only, say, 400 spots from an image, which would give a very blurry general outline of the molecule, not a high resolution image. The best Kendrew could come up with in 1957 was a black plasticine model supported on little rods 
showing twists and turns of the amino acid chain. To me, a photograph of the model looks a bit like your intestines, or maybe some fat noodles intertwined. Over the course of the 1950s and early 1960s, though, computer memories expanded, allowing up to 250,000 spots from an X ray image to be incorporated, giving resolutions down to the atomic scale. What Kendrew's research found was that proteins weren't all neatly arranged, but rather had seemingly random twists and turns. It meant that every protein's structure had to be determined on its own. A protein's ultimate folded and contorted structure was not predictable in any obvious way. But by 1959, Kendrew was able to come up with an atomic structure for myoglobin, which finally elicited oohs and ahs from audiences. It took nearly another decade for perutes. Still dealing with hemoglobin structure, four times larger than myoglobin, to get nearly atomic resolution from X ray images of hemoglobin, which he announced in 1968. For their work on protein structures, Perutz and Kendrew received the Nobel Prize in 1962. The next question became okay, so. Different proteins have different amino acid sequences and different overall folded up structures. How do proteins know how to bend and fold automatically into their correct shapes, or as chemists call them, their native conformations? Why do they even have these shapes? The American biochemist Christian Anfinsen became interested in the topic in the mid 1950s. He worked with a protein called ribonuclease with 124 amino acids. This protein is a catalyst for degrading RNA, which we shall discuss later, into smaller molecules. It folds up in such a way that areas come right next to each other and In fact, are bonded to each other through one cysteine amino acid to another cysteine amino acid. The actual bond is a sulfur sulfur bond called a disulfide bond and appears four times in, for example, cow pancreatic ribonuclease. Why this particular protein? He was working near Chicago. And the Armour meatpacking plant was an easy source for protein. Anfinsen, plus a couple of postdoctoral researchers, Michael Sela and Fred White, found that you can break these disulfide bonds in ribonuclease protein and get a denatured version, which wasn't folded up properly. To break these disulfide bonds, They used an alcohol with an SH group on the other end, a mercaptoethanol, which reacts with the sulfurs in the protein. Eventually, with enough mercaptoethanol surrounding the protein, the disulfide bonds turn into free SH groups dangling off the protein. In addition, you need to add other reagents like urea to get the denatured protein. The denatured protein forms a random coil structure and doesn't work biochemically. 
This is why it's called denatured, its true nature and purpose for breaking up RNA in this case is voided. But then, Anfinsen discovered that, over time and after removing the urea, the denatured ribonuclease gradually regained its enzyme activity. Those dangling SH groups in air oxidized back to disulfide bonds, and the enzyme reverted to its normal conformation, with the appropriate twists, turns, and linking disulfide bonds. The conclusion is that the protein's natural conformation with all the bends and turns is somehow innate to the sequence of amino acids itself. Lubert Stryer's textbook, Biochemistry, says that this is a central principle of molecular biology. Sequence specifies conformation. However, however protein folding operates, somehow it is inherent in the chemical interactions between the amino acids in the chain. Interestingly, suppose you let the ribonuclease oxidize with the urea still there. Then the enzyme works only 1% as well as normal ribonuclease. Here we note that the protein refolded wrongly with non-native disulfide bonds. Recall I said that there were four disulfide bonds, meaning there are eight cysteine amino acids to be paired up. One can pair them up in 105 different ways, only one of which actually works as the enzyme. Stryer calls the bad pairings scrambled ribonuclease. Anfinsen even observed another reaction. Suppose you had scrambled ribonuclease in water, but added a tiny amount of the mercaptoethanol, the reagent that breaks disulfide bonds. Gradually, you can regain enzymatic activity. The explanation is that the mercaptoethanol broke up the wrong disulfide bonds and got the correct repairings to occur until the normal structure returned, which took around 10 hours. This observation brings in thermodynamics, which we discussed quite a while ago. The native structure of ribonuclease is the most stable in terms of thermodynamics. Mispaired structures are less stable and will want to refold properly given the right conditions like those in living cells. I do note here that many proteins naturally fold up under the influence of other enzymes, helping them to achieve that most stable, normal state. This research became the basis for the thermodynamic hypothesis of protein folding that Anfinsen promoted starting in 1962. For his work, Anfinsen received the Nobel Prize in 1972. He also published an influential book in 1959 called The Molecular Basis of Evolution. As Anfinsen stated in a 1973 paper, the three-dimensional structure of a native protein in its normal physiological milieu, solvent, pH, ionic strength, presence of other components such as metal ions or prosthetic groups, temperature, and others, is the one in which the Gibbs free energy of the whole system is lowest. That is, the native conformation is determined by the totality of interatomic interactions, and hence 
by the amino acid sequence in a given environment. For many years, a major question in biochemistry has been what rules can we find, or what theory can explain how proteins fold based solely on the sequence of the amino acids they have? This is still an open question. In our next episode, we look at another revolution in chemistry the advent of electronic instrumentation in the lab. Until then, brave the elements. Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.